You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscana. I'm hosting today's program. I'd like to thank Karina for stepping into the studio to save this old bloke from a disaster. Kelly's still unwell. And uh, Karina, thank you very much for uh, helping me out because, as you know, I don't do buttons. You know that. Thank you. Now, Karina and Kelly have put their hands into the barrel and we've, put out, we've pulled out John Lawrence. Hello, John. Uh, hello, Joe. How are you? Hello, listeners. Good. Look, you're, you're a professional. You said, hello, listeners. I like that. Most people think they're just chatting with me. <laughs> uh, no, you got to... you got to say hello to the, the listeners. Yeah, well, I don't know how many there are out there. Maybe three, four, five, if we're lucky. But the... I, heard there's, I heard there's thousands that listen to your show, Joe. Is there? Well, John, flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you realise you're the second John Lawrence I've interviewed in the past year, but the other one was a little bit uh, unsavoury. He had an unsavoury past, which he didn't want to talk about, but uh, oh, he, was, he was kind of a standover merchant at one stage in his life, but he saw the light, you know, he saw the radical light. <laughs> now, John, uh, what, uh, we usually start off at the beginning, just to orientate our listeners, um, what year were you born in? I was born in 1954 in Melbourne, in Camberwell. Ah, middle Australia. You're a middle Australia lad. Uh, yeah, sort of. Sort of. I, I come up on a poor level, so... <laughs> <laughs> I was only there five minutes when I was born, and then I, then, then I, then I moved to Benalla. Well, five minutes in Camberwell. Oh, well, you know, not, <laughs> yeah. not, very, long in, not very long in Camberwell. So you got no memories about Camberwell then? Uh, no, none at all. Right. So uh, why did your parents move to Benalla? Oh, the family moved around a lot. Right. You know, in those days, my dad worked in the railways. Uh-huh. And I think I moved to four or five places before I actually settled in, in Benalla. We went to Kahuna, we went to um, Maui, we went to Sale, we went to uh, all over the place and we ended up in Benalla and... And then yeah. uh, tragedy struck, which I'll probably go into in a minute. Right. So, yeah. so I don't think people realise how important the railways were in Victoria, and that uh, people who worked for the railways were basically like uh, teachers. They could be sent any, anywhere at short notice. Oh yeah, like yeah, my dad went from Benalla and he joined the uh, railways. Um, he was in the railways thirty-five years, mm. and he worked on. He shunted trains in Benalla, and I guess he was a, well, he was a guard. So yeah. then he moved to suburban Melbourne and did electric trains. 
Right. And there was a guard on suburban trains in Melbourne. Yeah, and you got any information about your dad's background? Was he born in Australia or did he come in from overseas? Or? My dad was born in Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember, but the, the, pl- the name of the place is too long. It's right. a really long name. But, um, right. Uh, he was in the, the, the Second World War. Um, it was a place in Poland and his father owned a flower farm and, uh, sorry, a flower mill. And the soldiers came through there and killed him in front of the dead. Right. So it wasn't pleasant, and it was a very independent type of a town back then too, so there were a few radical sort of people there that were a bit different than the others in the town mm. where they hung out. Mm. But he was his, his family was killed in front of him at that point, mm. and then he came to Australia. So he was, he was a re- what they used to call a refo. Uh, re- a rebel, I suppose, yeah. No, they used to, they used to have a word for oh. refugees. They used to call them refos. Oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, they are refos. So, what, he, he, was, he kind of came He came with nobody, basically, did he? Yeah, well, he stowed away on a boat at 13. So he came here at 13, did he? Yeah, he stowed away. Right, right. Did he, did he talk about... Um, no, he never l- talked to me much. No, daddy. right. I, Sort of a topic I'd talk about a bit later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, look, I understand. Oh, yeah, yeah, I understand. So I just, yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, but the it, person it, I really don't, you know, right. I don't have a lot of respect for, for what he did. So. That's fair enough. How about your mum? Anyway, you got any uh, thoughts about your mum? Twenty-nine when she died. Right. There was a car crash in Benalla. She was twenty-nine right. when she died, right. and we're all in the car. And that's where my life began. That, that's why I mentioned Benalla. Right. Uh, we had a car crash and my mother was killed and we were all put into orphanages and my other brother and sister were adopted and I found them 40 years later. Right. Let's, let's go back a step. So how, mm. what, tell us, you got any recollections about your mum? Uh, very little. Oh. Very, very little. I mean, it's hard when you're six um, mm. to, re- to remember things. Um, oh, look, I just remember she loved us, and I remember we played with the neighbours, kids, and... Right. I remember a period in Benalla. I, I know there was love there from her, for sure. There was right. no doubt. And if the mm. car crashed and my mother didn't die and my father died, uh, we would have never gone into orphanages or got adopted at all. She would have taken the five of us. Right, so there were five... The... Oh, sorry, uh, uh, one... Sometimes I get confused because I didn't see them for so many years. Right. Uh, my older brother died in uh, about 85 or something, around that period. And I've got a younger brother, Kevin. His name's Kevin Foster. Mm-hmm. He lives in Geelong and plays drums. And I've got a sister who lives up in Kempsey. Right. In South Wales. And I didn't see both of them for 40 years. Right. I called up with them in St Kilda when I was playing music there. All right. Well, we'll we'll talk about. Anyway. That. Yeah, yep. we'll just we'll just go through it step by step. Yeah. Yeah. We got a long time. We've got fifty six minutes, uh, John. Yeah. Believe it or not, this is one of the few interviews you'll get where uh, we've got time to just expand on yeah. things. So six, and you found yourself in an orphanage. Yeah. Um. Do you have many recollections? Uh, yeah, I definitely do. Mm. The first home I went into was St Ignatius Nuns Home, Polish Nuns Home. 
Mm. And I have no recollection. That was one year. I, have, I do not remember anything, and it worries me why I don't mm. after what I've been through. Mm-hmm. And the second one was St. Joseph's Nuns Home, Surrey Hills in Melbourne. Right. I was there two years, and I remember a couple of things, if that. And then the next one, I went to St. Augustine's in Geelong, and I remember a lot about that. Much about that. Mm. Um, he asked, "What was it like?" Well, that's sort of why I attended a royal commission. Um, I was sexually abused and sexually abused by boys. There were two hundred kids in the home, and after my memory, I don't know, twenty Christian brothers, mm. roughly. And decades later, I find out four or five of them. Uh, well, I'm charges. Right. That's people that were looking after me. Mm. Mm. The history of the building, um, I can't really say too much because... No, I understand. I've got a court case pending, yes. uh, pending yes. so I can't really go too far into what I think personally. I'd love to tell you what I think personally. Well, maybe after the court case. You know, I can't. Yeah. yeah. After the... We, I, I, yeah, look, I understand the legal restrictions, yeah. so... You know, yeah. but but obviously it was... Uh, how, how many years did you spend in the orphanage? It was 10 years, 11 years. So you spent your whole childhood in the orphanage. You were yeah. never adopted out. See, that was the other thing. I mm. got offered four times to be adopted by four different sets of people, and mm. I was never adopted. And I don't know why. I don't know why I was left in that place. Mm. Some people say it was because your older brother was in there, but he used to bash the hell out of me every day of the week, so mm. played bully. Mm. He, 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 um, he went through hell himself, and he was quite hurt in the car crash. So oh. we went from a car crash into an orphanage, and this is part of a situation that I take as if a government knew what was going on, in a building, they wouldn't put an innocent child in a building that doesn't have people in it, that you all had people in it that do the things that they've been charged with. Mm. And in 1966, the name St. Augustine's Orphanage was changed to St. Augustine's Boys Home. Now, I'm saying this because I was in there a long time. I noticed a hell of a lot of difference in that building when it was changed from orphanage to boys' home. Orphanage means they love you as a child and you need love. So you're an orphan, and the idea of an orphan is that you get cared for and looked after and loved. When it turned into a boys' home, it filtered through to me that all these kids were coming into the home that had stolen things, that had done things wrong. Mm. And the kids that were in the orphanage's orphans that I knew, um, it was totally, it was a different place after that. It was like a detention centre. It was like a detention centre. It changed. Kids, like, one of the things about being in an orphanage is, one like that was, you got the cuts, you you got the strap. Right. So when these people, if you can imagine, they've turned out to be pedophiles, well then... They were brutal when they gave the cuts. Mm. So you might have your back turned in a classroom, you'd be talking to someone, and 
one of these people would walk up and just whack you behind the head. But it'd be at 200,000 miles an hour and they'd take your head off or you won't look it. Mm. So the repercussions for your eardrum, uh, that wasn't good. But lots of punishment, you know, the, the punishments that I saw in that building, yeah, normal people wouldn't fathom. They, they, they wouldn't be able to work out why that clergy member would do that to a person. But they'd be wondering, about why would they be doing that? If it was on film, you'd be just shattered to mm. think that that's what they were doing. Right. I don't want to go too far. No, no, that's fine. Yeah. It's just, you know, the, the punishments were just like brutal. And, and you're in there trying to cope, so mm. trying to find a space to think. Mm. Yeah, and you're in isolation most of the time because you'd always be trying to hide away from everyone else because you didn't want to be with anyone else. Mm. Lots of you had to see the other kids had lots of problems and when there's 200 of them, a new kid would arrive and he'd be getting the cuts on his first day so he'd be right. standing around watching all that again and then mm. one arrives every day of the week. Mm. Then you'd have a fight, be like the new boys arrive. So I don't know how many fights I had, and I'm only a little boy. I'm a little man now, sorry. Right. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, like, I was only a little kid. Yes. And I used to get into a lot of fights. Yes. You stand your ground. Yes. I don't, but, yeah. And religion, religion was totally just pumped into you. You had no... I remember the, the, the day I arrived, I went into the church for Mass. As soon as we walked into the building, we were taken into Mass. And, you know, I mean, I'd already been to Mass at the nuns' homes, but, yeah, look, this was like a monastery, this place. It was just huge. Mm. It was huge. It was double story. that pillars all the way around it, and it was like five k's wide, and it was 25 when I went there, and now it looks like Nari Warren. Right. The house is all around it. I pretty spun me out when I went there last time, I could not believe what I was seeing. Right. Like the ovals we used to play footy on, aren't they? Their houses. Mm. Mm. Like a monastery, and then all of a sudden, uh, Nari Warren's around you, right up to the front door, and you're looking out 35 years ago, right. or 50 years ago when I was there, mm. and you'd be seeing 35 k's. It was one house nearly to Geelong from Heighton. Mm. Heighton's, um, I don't know, roughly. Did you? I don't know. Did you get any education at all during those years? Uh, yeah, in, in bad schools in the orphanage, sorry, um, yeah. classes. So is that their classes were actually in the orphanage, you didn't actually intermix they, with other kids? Yeah, they were. Um, in primary school, you went to primary at the orphanage and then I went to Geelong Tech. Right. So we called a bus to Geelong Tech. Right. So when I got to Geelong Tech, in that period, it was like I was really starting to, to like music and all the kids from outside had long hair. Right. And they yes. wore long pants and yes. we wore short pants and we used to have a bowl put over our head and we'd have short back and sides. So, you know, we are really, really in the scene right. amongst the kids mm. from the outside. Mm. And we'd have fights. Same again, you'd have a fight with the kid. Right. I was pulled out of a couple at Geelong Tech by kids from the home because, you know, we were protecting each other as well. Yes. And what kids you didn't like, but there were kids, you know, had a lot of mates from there over the years and and then a lot of them aren't here anymore. 
what happened to him. Mm. So when was when were you given to the keys to the door? When you were 18 or 17 or younger? Uh, around 17, 18. Right. I left when I was 18. Did the, did the, but were you given any assistance whatsoever when you left? Uh, very little. I got $100 for some clothes. That was it? No accommodation? No. When I left, um, I stood on Richmond Station. I got I went from Geelong, a bunch of kids. Mm. I was dropped at Richmond Station and I was left there with a suitcase. That was it? And my dad um, come to pick me up. Right. And, oh, sorry, I caught a train to Hawthorne from Richmond because it's on the same line. Right. So I was looking out from Richmond Station thinking at that time, this is my life. This is where I'm going. I don't know what I'm going to do, but uh, this is it. Mm. And this is what they call freedom. Did you get any visitors when you were in the orphanage? My dad came down about three times. Three times, what, in 15, what, 13, ten years? Ten years, three times. Yeah, three or four times. They, they must have been difficult interactions. and sisters? Uh, no, I'm no. Just, no, no, just real family. Right. So, when, how long did you last with your dad? Um, well, he died uh, mid-80s. I went to his funeral. No, no, I'm just saying, when, when he picked you up at Richmond Station, did you, did you, oh, go, sorry. Did you go and live with him weeks. or what? Yeah, two weeks. Two weeks, <laughs> it didn't look like. And uh, how, did, how did you get out? What did you do? Did you have well, a job? Seventy-two. This is it. Right. So, not a very auspicious beginning for your life in a of freedom, no. as you said. So, how did how did you um how did you get out of this? Well, I had an apprenticeship. I got an apprenticeship in plumbing for three years, and, and then I got I'll, I'll call it sacked, but sacked for a really cruel reason. I, I was no good at mathematics. You know, I couldn't work out change, really. Right. I was good at English and social studies, but not good at, at school, but not good at maths. But um, I was doing a spouting job, and I just buggered up the mathematics, and the guy just said, you're safe, mate. See you later. That was it, after three years? Yeah, after so I was nearly, nearly there on my fourth, and mm. I just didn't get there. But I did car wash. I went and did car washing, then I did car detailing for about six years. I'm sorry, five years. On and off. And then the story goes on to where 
I got different jobs. I went into a mental asylum for six weeks. I tried to commit suicide a number of times. I walked in front of a car, I slashed my wrist. I took 90 tablets, got my stomach pumped at the Alfred. Um, I did a lot of things that I shouldn't probably be on the planet. But I wasn't happy, and I wasn't happy at all. So I went to Royal Park and I said, if you don't lock me up, I won't. I'll just, I'll, I'll just do away with myself. I won't be on the planet because I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually locked you up, did they? Yeah, well, I, I think if you go in there and you say you're going to kill yourself, and then no. I said to them, look, I want <laughs> you to lock me up and yes. I want you to put me under lock and key because right. I will do it. So you, you, went uh, as a vo- you went in as a voluntary patient? As a voluntary patient. Right. I knew I was going to do something. Mm-hmm. I already had done some. So. Mm. So, so why why did you have this feeling that you wanted to live, you know, that you actually went there? I mean, your life well, has been very difficult up till then. Obviously, there, there must have been something driving you forward. Um, I can give you the answer to that. It's called a crystal set. Right. And what what the crystal set was, uh, was a... Some people out there might know what a crystal yeah, set is. Yeah, I had one. Old people. Yeah, yeah, us old people know. I know a crystal set. Yeah. I used to hide yeah. under the bed with my crystal set. That, yeah. There you go. That's yeah. about <laughs> <laughs> In the um, dormitory, um, one night we had five, five of us had a crystal set. And we had it all, because this was like two-story, massive building, so you're up really high. Mm. And we put it out the window and onto the spouting, because you had to clip it on the metal. And you had a little, like a transistor and an earpiece for the people that don't know. You didn't even have a battery in it, which was the best part. And of course, they put a battery in the transistor after that. But um, we're all listening to it, just listening under the blankets. And then this Christian brother was down the bottom and we could see him looking up and we all going, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> and the next minute, the lights go on, everyone out of bed. And then he came up and ripped five blankets off all the beds with the kids that had the crystal set. Mm. And no, he wasn't happy with us. But that's part of the thing uh, of where it started for me. Was I just loved the radio, you know. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to either be in a band or I wanted to, well, you'd call it, you know, and say to my older friends back then, you wanted to be a pop star. Right. If you said that now, you sort of think someone would say you got an ego or something. Oh, nothing but, wrong with ego, mate. Nothing yeah, wrong with they're, ego. They're, they're, <laughs> you know, like, you wanted to be a pop star, so that, that's what I wanted to do. That, that yeah. was my aim, and nothing ever was going to stop me. Mm-hmm. And I had this saying, well, is it, this is not ego, I was saying, I'm number one, and this is the only way I'm going to get out of this, mm-hmm. out of this whole environment of where I'm at. Mm-hmm. might take me 10, 20 years, but... I'm number one, meaning in my direction, nothing's going to stop me to get to from me getting to where I want to get to. So at that point, I had a crystal set, and so I'd listen to you know Lobby Lloyd and the Gallup Balls and all Billy Dog, all Dusty Springfield, all those people. Yep. Back then, on my on my crystal set, I got the cuts for listening to my crystal set. You know, like I was caught mm-hmm. listening to it on a number of times. Uh-huh. And they did not like me having a crystal set. I appeared in a courtroom three to four weeks ago with a clergy person. Mm-hmm. And that clergy person 
particularly said to me, um, that's an evil thing that you're doing there. I said, is it evil? What's evil about it? He said, that is evil, and your mind and your head is going to be in another place one day, and you're not going to know where you are, sonny boy. Mm. I just can't forget that. I was 14. He really pounded it into my head. So that made me want to do it more. So when I got to that point of leaving the home, I was listening to, I would have to say another, well, I'd just say a radio station, but back then, Triple R was a scene back then, yep. so mm-hmm. sorry, I know we're on 3CR. Oh, uh, look, uh, look uh, we don't like, mind. Look, Community Radio Network, it's a wonderful network around the country and uh, a great legacy of the Whitlam Labor government trying to break the... Uh, Monopoly that uh, the commercial sector had on radio, so we we accept all community radio stations. And so when I I was walking along, sorry, I heard Fed can dance on the radio, and I went, whoa, Hmm. that's what I want to do. I mean, I'd heard something way back then. I heard the Rolling Stones 2000 light years from home, and that's what sort of made me think that's what I want to do. I was just in a dormitory and I was watching Dick's, Dick Williams, I think his name was. Mm. He did a 15-minute show called uh, Hit Parade on Channel 2 in the afternoon on Saturday. And he came on and said, this is the Rolling Stones, new single, uh, sorry, off the album Satanic Requests, uh, 2,000 live years and I went, that's it, that's what I want to do. So I had a similar experience when I was listening to Dead Can Dance on the radio mm-hmm. and they were playing at the Crystal Ballroom. And then, but what happened was I heard them on the radio and I'm walking up the street, in, sorry, I passed the ballroom, never been in there. And I'd been out to see Bobby Lloyd, Billy Thorpe, uh, Blackfeather, all those bands at Q Club in the early 70s. Lots of bands I saw there after I got out of the home. But when I heard Dead Can Dance, I'm walking down Fitzroy Street and I saw this building in the head. Tonight, Dead Can Dance. And I went, whoa, they're playing tonight. Mm-hmm. Far out, I've got to go in there. Right. But you see, I had a tram suit on. And I wasn't in the tramway. It's just that I thought that looked okay. So when I walked in there, of course, everyone was wearing black. I went, whoa, what is this? This is like off the planet. Mm. But then it turned out to be probably one of the best places I've, you know, best group of people I've met. Mm-hmm. And so I went in and saw them. And then I went around to this, I knew this guy, his name was uh, Peter Kirk, who I still know today. Um, great friend. Um, he had a house and I went around there and I ended up meeting a couple of people that were connected to Dead Condense. And one of them was Johnny Bolliam, who played in a band called The Scavengers with Brendan Perry in New Zealand before they became Dead Condense. And Ron met Lisa Gerrard and formed Dead Condense. Anyway, one night, uh, John introduced me to Brendan and he said, can you play trumpet? And I said, ah. Yeah, yeah, I can play trumpet, you know, I thought I could. So I got up and played a few notes and I did a gig. Mm-hmm. So that was an amazing night because there was a few people there. And 
I think I might have done two gigs with them. But, you know, they went on and did other things. But then I formed a band called Permanent Press with John, Johnny Volume, out of the Marching Girls. Oh, and, I remember the Marching Girls. Yeah. yeah. And there's Hefner, or Simon Munro, he was called back then. He comes from New Zealand with Ron Perry. But he called himself Ron Perry before Brendan Perry. So uh, it, John, Des, and Ronnie come from New Zealand and they came to Australia and played, you know, in Melbourne as the Marching Girls. When Dead Can Dance went overseas, uh, Des didn't go, but Paul Erickson went and he played bass on the first album. He came back and then John Volume said to me, do you want to, what do you do? And I said, oh, I want to, I, I don't know, I want to be in a band, I'm a car cleaner. I don't know how to be in a band. He said, oh, you have a jam. And he, I mean, it was funny to me now when I hear this. But um, he said, we'll have a jam. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, it's funny you play together. I said, okay, we'll have a jam. I didn't have a jam. And I screamed my guts out, you know, ah, you know, and this going for it. Right. And I, they're all looking at me going, <laughs> What's this like? This, this is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, he's really angry and yeah. wild. Yeah. He's like Nick Cave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, so I ended up playing with them and writing songs and then we formed the, well, we formed the band and we played at the Crystal Ballroom a few times and we played at other places. And then I uh, formed a band called The Black Sun um, that was with Brian Colchin, he plays with Hugo Race now, and I've done 12 albums with him, I think. Mm -hmm. um, Marty Lubrin uh, was in Hunters and Collectors, and Morris, who funnily enough plays in my latest band, and he was the drummer back then, and now he plays guitar for me. Mm -hmm. But I went into a into a number of bands and after the Crystal Ballroom um, I, lived, I lived in St Kilda like 12 years or something and in that period of playing gigs everywhere there was this big place called the Prince of Wales sitting there with no one in it or um, no music in it right. so one day I sort of had a couple of beers early in the morning because I drank a lot then I got my briefcase and I tell you I didn't look like a businessman but I tried to look like a businessman and I went up there Yeah, I'm going to ask you a question John yeah. what colour was the briefcase? Uh, it was black Ah you're a businessman yeah. you're fine you'll pass you know one of these hippie hippie rad business people that's okay you'll do, you'll do well I, I, I would have looked like a washed up washed up half punk or something Yeah yeah, yeah 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 but um briefcase was pretty rough. <laughs> I pulled up there and I said, look, I'm playing this band and we want to play, you know, here. And no, no, you're not playing here. And I said, well, you know, I've got a good chance of pulling a big crowd. And he goes, what would be the crowd? And I said, oh, you know, a couple of hundred or something. Yeah. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. No, we don't want that. I've got no PO. I said, we'll keep the PO. <laughs> and so anyway, we got to keep there. And five people turned up. <laughs> he was not impressed. And and then 
so the place opened, and this guy called John Fugini, I think it is, I'm pretty sure, and Neil Wett, um, who might be listening now, um, they started, they, they got the promotions company in there, and they got all the, you know, the rest of the bands that played there, mm. in there. But at the same time, we played there, and the next time we played there, we had 450. So he forgave me. Um, well, they, they lost. They lost their way there. They weren't used to the Prince of Wales being one of those <laughs> <laughs> venues. You know? not, not on the first night. Yeah, they lost their way. That's what happened. That's what you just said. Look, I, I'm interested in the fact that I'm just amazed. You tell me you just stood up and you played trumpet. Now, how did you get to that stage? I mean, playing trumpet's not easy. All oh, right, I did play cornet in the home. I was in the, the band mm-hmm. that marched up Burke Street. Right. Um, and I played cornet, the third cornet. You have soprano, I think you have second cornet and third cornet. Mm. So I played cornet, which is like a trumpet, smaller than a trumpet, same deal, same sort of thing. So, so you had a, a little bit of education in music in the home? Uh, yeah, just a little bit. I mean, mm. I knew what a minute and a crotch and a quaver was and mm. sort of wished I did go into it further, but, you know, writing all these songs I have now and albums I have done, well, you know, I don't sort of look at it, but would have done me any good anyway, because right. I've just taken it from the heart and soul and it's come out of there. Mm. Speaking about all these albums you've done, um, have you had much um, interaction with the uh, you know, the type of uh, entrepreneurs and spruikers and that type of stuff in the industry, or were you basically did your own thing? mid-80s, I ran into, uh, I, I basically self-promote. Right. I, I got all the gigs. Um, um, I, I basically did all that type of work for all the bands I've been in, still do. Mm-hmm. But um, at that point, I got a lot of help off a guy called Glenn Forsythe, who was the, um, uh, he worked at Virgin Records in the city, it was pretty high up in there. Mm-hmm. And... You know, they had Madonna come in, they had U2 come in, they had, you know, all massive bands were going in there and doing short stints at Virgin in the city. Right. And so he put us on in there on a Friday. And, you know, like Madonna's appearing there and there'd be a queue a mile long and I'd sort of go up the front and Glenn would go, you know, you can't think in this way, John. <laughs> Smooth me in and then I'd get in the door before 10,000 others did. Right. So it was pretty good. Yeah. But, you know, Glenn did things like he had Independence Day on the foreshore of St Kilda mm-hmm. and we did a big gig at the Palace, like, with a whole lot of St Kilda bands. And there's about 12 bands played and he brought MTV in and MTV interviewed the bands and myself. Right. And um, it was a great day, really good, because, you know, we played on a really big stage and mm-hmm. everybody had a... And we were... Uh, recorded by Triple J uh, oh, in the caravan at the back by Chris Thompson, and they later went on and recorded a couple of things the band I was in. And yeah, so I got a bit of help through Glenn, and I bought out an LP. He put 200 of them in a line at Virgin on a shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, it really helped us, is what I'm saying. Yeah. But I knew, basically, 
I did what I did at the Prince of Wales. I took a briefcase around and I'd go around to each venue and give them the spill. You know, who was right. in the band and what mm-hmm. they'd done and mm-hmm. what you got to do when you get a gig. Right. Which uh, was quite funny. Recently, I went to book a gig and the guy said, you got an email. And <laughs> he goes, well, I will email you. And I said, well, it's as easy as that. He's like, oh, I've got it, you. When you look at all the bands, you just push a button and you go, do you like that one? You don't like that one. Right. Goes, oh, no, it's not like that. It seems like that. Oh, you don't talk to people? I said, I'd much prefer to talk to you. Yeah. Anyway, I found out who owned the building. That was my mission in the next three weeks. And then I got the key. Right. He rang me up the guy and said, but when do you want to play? <laughs> but that was only because I went to meet the guy that owns the building. Right, right. It's very difficult, especially. Uh, oh, yeah. That's right. You got an email. You got this. You got that. What's your phone number? What's this? No, no face-to-face interaction. You go into an office and you kind of email the bloke or the woman two, you know, seats away from you. You know, you don't get up and say hello. This is the problem. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I used to love talking to those people. You know, mm. like going in there and having a chat to them and mm. talk about the music scene while they were talking. It was really good. Like Trish Shoesmith from the Esplanade. She, she was a lovely lady. She died, I don't know, a few years ago. Mm. But um, there are others. Um, that, that, they were just great people to talk to as well as booking a gig. Yeah. But I was going to say on the, say on the, the topic of um, how did things roll along back then, I met, I went, met these people that went to Swinburne at that time, which was John Hillcoat and Evan English. And they were only Swinburne students and, you know, they went on and made feature films. You know, a hell of a lot of film clips for pretty well-known people. And during that period, um, I did a lot of, I did a lot of acting in the theatre. This was just before I went to the ballroom. Mm-hmm. I'd done, say, 490 plays at 490 performances in a children's theatre. So it was two shows a day, six days a week, one and a half hours each show for kids. So I ended up doing nine plays. And that was a massive experience for me because kids don't muck around. When when kids are watching you, if you're boring, they'll let you know you're boring. <laughs> they'll just talk and fidget and not, they'll turn around. They won't even know you're there. Mm, right. So I, so I learnt a lot and I met a lot of people in that era. And when I was at that theatre, this guy came along and he said, look, I'll get you a role uh, on television. I went, gee, far out. <laughs> that's where I'm aiming. Right. So um, he took me down to Channel 7 and he said, this is Denise Drysdale, but this is, um, uh, the name of the show was the Ron Chalinor show and he was, he had, he had a stint with, on the Burt Newton show, um, or the late Burt Newton now, mm-hmm. um, on his show on, on morning TV and he was Ron Chalinor, uh, sorry, the great Burke, yep. he called himself, he was a drunk. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting a show, a TV pilot with Johnny Young, Lewis Productions, 
and there was JJ from Cockshop, as I said, Denise Drysdale, Colette Man. It was just with those massive people that had done well. Mm-hmm. And I went down to Lenox Street, Richmond, to TV House, and they said, look, here's two grand, go and buy some clothes. <laughs> Man, I went, holy shit, clothes, wow. So I went and bought clothes, and then they said, well, we're going to have dinner tonight. And it was like a $500 dinner with 20 people. Oh. Now, all those people I just mentioned, plus others. Yeah. Like the head of the TV industry was there. Anyway, I ended up doing a shopping centre the next day, and I got 400 bucks for one hour's work, right. playing a clown. Mm-hmm. And then it rolled on from there. Um, and the show was written off on tax. That was the disappointing part. Right. Um, but after that, when I met John Hillcoat and Evan English, uh, they did film clips, and I was in a lot of those film clips. And there was about 13 of them. I won't go through all of them, but a couple of them. I played Cosimodo in Cosimodo's Dream. Right. So Mason and the Reels. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty historic clip now, that one. Um, I was Costello, Men at Work. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a Marching Girls clip. Joe Camilleri clip. I Want to Be Loved, it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, look, there's a few more. I, I just can't think of all Yeah. And 
knocked on the door with Polly, who had a camera. And this guy comes down the stairs. What do you want? So he had cast a film. He said, F off. <laughs> I said, oh, right, okay. What do you want? I said, we're here to do a feature film. F off. I said, oh, okay. No worries. It's worth five million. What? How much? <laughs> Come on. Come up here. I went up and it's like uh, about 150 people pumping iron yeah. upstairs in this gym, like punching the bag. And yeah. I had to walk around and pick the meanest people. Yeah. So to me, that was an amazing job. You know? <laughs> oh, it is an amazing job. Yeah. When the film was done, I was quite pleased with a couple of people that were put in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, an amazing experience. and. Yeah. Those people really did help me, John and Edmund, and mm, they went on to good. do the proposition and um, Lawless right. in America. So, so, so yeah. have you always been in this industry, or did you, you know, acting? Um, oh, all yeah, this? all I've ever done. Oh, right. Is, is it enough to make a living? No, because I've never made anything out of it. Nothing. Right. So, yeah, is that why you're still? Is that why you're still working? I'm still doing it. Like I, I haven't worked in a long time because of what happened to me. Mm. And I'm going to, I'm thrilled out all the years I never worked. When I say I never worked, I worked at odd jobs, but I never had a secure job. Right. I had one secure job, which was my plumbing apprenticeship. Mm. And then apart from that, I was just in and out of jobs. Because mm. I, I couldn't concentrate, I couldn't, I just couldn't work. Right. I could work, you know, I could go outside now and mow the lawn. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking being at a job, doing what you're told, doing what they want. I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't concentrate. No. Right. Now, you said, you said you went to your father's funeral. Uh, did you have any contact with him after you left when you were 18 or...? Uh, very little. Right. Because I moved out and I moved in there for two weeks. Yeah, you I told me that. a couple of times. Yeah. That I... You know, one day my brother smashed my head in, mm -hmm. uh, in a street, um, and this is just after I got out of the home where he was in with me. Mm. And that was it. I said, never again. Don't see you. Don't see the old man. Right. So I'll get to, I just want to get to this point about my brother and my dad. It's hard to call him my dad after what I tell you. But it's like... I wondered why he, he bullied me all the time. And after the funeral, he said to me, I want to come up and visit you. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, okay. He said, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know how to say I'm sorry. But there aren't any words for sorry, I don't know how to. But anyway, he came up and he explained everything. Mm -hmm. Everything. How the car ran off the road, why it ran off the road. And why he, like, used to just beat me up all the time. Because mm. he was angry. When he entered the building, when he entered that building, there were ten kids on top of this kid. Ten. Mm -hmm. They all told him to F off. If he said anything, he'd be killed. That's when you leave the home to The kid committed suicide that they left with my brother. Right. So my brother was shattered. Alcoholic, died at 44, couldn't cope. Mm. 
and I, my other brother Kev, uh, my brother managed to. What happened was I was living in St Kilda. I got a will, and I was just looking at this will. It's a bit of paper. It said two hundred bucks. I thought it was two hundred thousand. Two hundred. But I tell you what, on the other side was worth two hundred thousand. Um, what was on the other side of the paper was um, about sixty names and addresses and phone numbers of uncles, aunties, brothers, sisters, right. godmothers, grandfathers, everything that was connected. So immediately I got a phone call from my sister and my brother saying, I'm your brother, I'm your sister. So that sort of, uh, that point in time really spun me out. Right. But when I met my brother up in the hills where I moved after I left St Kilda, um, he came up to visit me mm -hmm. and he said, John, the car didn't run off the road. The car was driven off the road. And I said, well, how do you know that? Said, because I met this guy who's your father in the park and I put him up against a tree and I said, I want to know what happened and why we ended up in that joint for so long. And so he told him what happened. So... I guess you can work out what happened. Yeah, it didn't yeah. go off the road. Someone drove it off the road. Yeah. So we went to the Benalla Hotel, sorry, the Taton Hotel, which is 16 miles away from Benalla. And my mum and dad played music. He played squeeze blocks and harp. Right. He played acoustic. So mm -hmm. they did little hotels. They didn't have a PA because it was 1960 when this was happening. Right. Um, and... So he was really, my brother was really affected by being in that home, as well as what he saw on day one, mm. entry to the building. Right. He had to live with that that whole time. Was yes. You said so you met... Time, yes. Sorry. No, I just said you, you met your sister too, did you? After 40 years. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, that's what happened on the wheel when mm. I got the paper. So, so that, that's how that's how you're able to trace everybody. Yeah, names right. and addresses, phone right. numbers, all on the back page of the will. Right. Right. That uncle planned that. He planned that to happen because he mm. knew that we were all split up, and he wanted right. us to be together. Right. And were you together? Uh, no, because we got adopted. No, but I mean, oh, when you when you got the will and you called people up, were you able to re-meet? And oh yeah, yeah, I went and met my sister and I. What he was—he was musically inclined too, was he? You know, he asked me. He said, "What do you do?" I said, "I'm, play, I'm a singer in the band." He said, "I'm a drummer in the band." <laughs> so right. that was funny. And then we played a gig, and my older brother was there just before he died. And yeah. We did a gig. Yeah. With, and it was quite funny. The band was called the Brotherhood of John Lawrence. <laughs> and I said, "Good evening." No one knew I had brothers, so right. I said, "Good evening." We are the Brotherhood of John Lawrence. And my brother in front of me and my other brother on drums. Right, right. And they all went, what? Mm. Where'd they come from? Right. <laughs> yeah. Let alone play with me. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's amazing. So we've got yeah. about five minutes left, uh, John. I'm just wondering, have you got any advice for people who maybe have gone through the same experiences you have. I mean, you've survived and you've done exceptionally well with your life, obviously. You've done lots of uh, 
fascinating things and you've survived. Have you got um, any advice, people who find themselves in, in these dark corners, you know? And there's many people who find themselves in this situation. Look, I, um, it's funny how an interview goes so far, because I was going to get around to this point, that one of my points in this interview was to tell survivors to come forward and to say to survivors, we're not losers. We're not, we're not people that are just left somewhere to cope for themselves. We are, but we've got strength. And we've had a lot of victories. And what I call this is the power base has shifted. And where the power base has shifted today is where the survivor, I don't, I don't really like calling them survivors. I like calling them life carriers. Mm-hmm. because they carry burden, they carry the burden of other people's shame and they've done that for decades and possibly centuries and they're life carriers, they carry life for everyone else it's not exactly for everyone else but there's a lot of people that cause shame and burden on, on these people I call them life carriers because they've got a lot to give the other thing is um, we should be celebrating survivors. We should be celebrating victory, not so much the pain and suffering, but think that you are, you are someone, you are positive, and they're not going to win. And where the victories are and the power base is shifted is things like the Powell court case, is things like George Powell, is things like uh, the all the clergy being caught all over the world. Thousands of them. This is victory. This is victory for us. It's not like, oh, they've all been caught. It's victory. Mm. The Pell thing was a victory. People keep thinking, oh, George Pell, he got away with it. Well, he did get away with it to a degree. But he, he still, you know, he was still, he was still guilty, but it was a technicality the guy got off on. That's all it was, a technicality. Mm. And upon that, it's like saying, world media, this is the victory. World media attention. I can count outside that courtroom where we were demonstrating. Um, there are about 400 world photographers all in a line with those massive cameras you see on the news. Mm. All of them. I, I, I got interviewed by quite a few of those people. BBC, NBC, all of them. Not all of them, but lots of them. Mm. They interviewed survivors outside the courtroom. And that's the victory, because the whole world is starting to see that the government has to do something. The churches have to do something. They're being forced to do things. Mm. They're very slow on doing it. Mm. Well... This, yeah. And... Sorry, but no, no. It, it's more victory. It, it, I, I know there's the burden. Mm-hmm. I, I know there's isolation and silence. And I know we all live in that. But I speak to survivors and I've heard their stories. And, you know, they just tear you apart when you are another survivor. Mm-hmm. But when you get used to hearing them, you just realise they have to be told it's victory. It's not all victory. Of course it's not. There's people fighting for redress. There's people fighting for 
court cases, they have to go to court. Another big victory for the survivor was laws had been changed. Laws have had to change. Like I appeared in a mm. in Parliament where they changed the law on state wards, where state ward files were running overtime, meaning mm. when I left, I was still a ward of the state. Right. That means I've still got a criminal record. Mm. I used to wonder why I used to get picked up by the police every five minutes every time I went out in my car. Right. That's why I was still a ward of the state. Yeah. Look, John. Look, I'm sorry. So, I'm, no, look, I'm sorry it's come to an end, but um, yep. I think you've had some exceptionally wise advice for people, and uh, I'm uh, proud that you're part of this country, and I'm proud that you've um, done so well, and so many other people are in difficult circumstances have done so well, and as you said. Things have changed, and you need to take advantage of those changes or they will disappear. So thank you very much, John, and all the best in your musical career, and hopefully you'll be uh, singing at the age of 90. Uh, thanks. Thank you very much, Joe, and, and thanks, 3CR, for having me on the show, and um, I hope Oops. people out there got something out of that. I'm sure they have. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. Thank Bye-bye. You. been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.